I packed up all my stuff, moved from London to San Francisco. I, I didn't know anyone, I didn't have any friends, just kind of threw myself into it and said, I'll, I'll meet anyone, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. As well as trying to meet as many people as you can, the other thing that you can be doing is helping those people out. And I think if you want to succeed, you kind of have to embrace that philosophy. Hello, and welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of conversations with top minds in venture capital. I'm your new host, Peter Chapman. For those of you who are coming back to Venture Confidential, you'll note that this is a change. These interviews used to be conducted by our managing director, Tom Drummond. He's graciously agreed to hand the reins over to yours truly. In this episode, I interview Tom himself. We talk about how he navigated his career in venture, how to network successfully, and some of the things he's learned while building HeavyBits community. If you'd like to learn more about HeavyBits program or are interested in being a guest on this podcast, email me at vc at heavybit.com. All right. Welcome back to Venture Confidential. I'm super excited to be joined today by Tom Drummond, managing partner at HeavyBit. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's good to be doing this again. How does it feel to be on the other side of the table? Terrifying, frankly. Uh, no, it's uh, it's definitely a lot easier to be in the interviewer's chair than the interviewees, that's for sure. Good. Well, we'll, we'll keep it gentle. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, I'd, I'd love to start with you and just sort of your your foray into venture. You're sort of the anomaly at HeavyBit in that you've been in venture for most of your professional career. Uh, how did you get into it? I studied engineering at university, uh, engineering and computer science. And then when I left university, uh, actually went and joined a small startup uh, in, in London. Um, it's just kind of back in the days when you know, the LAMP stack was cool and, um, uh, you know, PHP and, and web front end stuff was kind of exciting. I uh, actually started uh, uh, working for this small startup, um, was enjoying that. And then a friend of mine came to me and said he'd been approached by a venture firm uh, to go and be a summer analyst, but wasn't interested in taking the role because he was actually going to go and work at a large bank. But he thought it would be perfect for me and uh, asked me whether I'd like to kind of go and meet these folks who are running a venture fund. Uh, and I just jumped at the chance. A long time, you know, I'd read about Silicon Valley and I'd read about venture capital and startups, uh, always from a distance, like, you know, literally uh, thousands of miles across the Atlantic. Uh, you know, this was kind of a shot out of the blue to be able to... to um, get into the ecosystem, which, uh, which was, yeah, really hard to turn down. Tell me a little bit about those early years. You started as an analyst and you sort of worked your way up. Yeah, I again, yeah, it's a bit anomalous, I suppose. I kind of ground my way out in in, um, in in venture capital. You know, I've had every, I think almost every title that VC firms hand out. I've been an analyst, I've been an associate, I've been a principal, I've been a partner. The role really changes very, very dramatically, obviously, as you kind of rise, rise through the ranks. Uh, when I first joined Venture, I didn't leave the building. My main job was to research new companies, existing companies that, that we were talking to, competitive landscapes, markets, either surface opportunities, but for more usually kind of just surface context uh, for things that we were looking at. Yeah, that was almost entirely staying inside the building. It was almost entirely kind of doing a lot of research online, not a lot of face-to-face -face interactions, like some phone calls and things like that, but quite heavy on the, quite heavy on the research side. And then, and then a little bit as well on, on the financial side, you know, the fund I was working for was a slightly later stage fund and uh, the financial models, returns, profiles, liquidation, waterfalls, things like that. Mm. I spent a lot of time um, building, revising, you know, whether we were 
looking at our existing portfolio or negotiating new companies. Was there sort of a well-worn track to partner or did you expect that you'd have to leap in order to, to move up at some point? It's unusual. It's very unusual to go from analyst to partner. It's certainly at the same firm. It's almost unheard of. Good partners have a very strong understanding of what it means to run a business. Mm. And, and so you tend to find that most people who are working in venture, uh, certainly at the senior levels, um, have been you know, leaders of some kind uh, or in, uh, operators of some kind beforehand. So you know, that might mean that you start a company, become a founder, you know, your CEO, but that also might mean that you're um, just early in a company. You might be running business development or running sales or running product. You know, your exposure, your network, your experiences um, make you kind of well suited to, to move back into to venture afterwards. But yeah, it's, it's super unusual to, to kind of go through, um, to go through the ranks like that, I think. And, and, and again, particularly at, at, uh, to do so at a firm. You know, for me, to move ahead, to make partner faster, I really had to leave my last firm. There's really kind of three levels that you come in at. It's an analyst level, there's an associate level, and there's a, a principal level. And the principal level is really, you're on a tr- partner track. You know, it, it means that if you can stick out two, three years as a principal, they'll make you a partner. The associate level, you know, there tends to be a you know, split between post-MBA and pre-MBA associates. And then the analysts uh, are, are, you know, very much kind of fresh out of university, right? You know, you, you've sort of spanned the gamut here. Um, and you've had this somewhat unusual career where you've, you've really seen the whole breadth of possible venture jobs. You kind of mentioned that you need a fairly different set of skill sets starting out as an analyst through becoming a principal and then partner. How did you get from like, I have this super analytical job where I'm not networking at all to I now have this really outward facing job where I'm building relationships. Was that a, a difficult transition for you? Is there stuff you did to fill in the gaps? I mean, it certainly took time for me. Right, you know, and I, I think probably the biggest change that that happens as people rise through the venture ranks, and that is from kind of analysis to relationships. Right, it becomes a, it goes from being a, a very you know desk focused job to being one that's mostly about meeting people and more importantly reading people. Um, you know, understanding whether those people are good, are bad, or like you know how strong a founder that is. You know, whether they have the right attributes or right skills to be a successful entrepreneur. And that is simply stuff that, you know, as a junior person in venture, you, you never really care about, never really look at. The way I've tried to improve my skill set in that front is to have a really, really wide aperture for meeting people. Mm. I've I very rarely turn down introductions. I always try to meet as many people as I can when I go to a conference. Mm-hmm. You know, collecting business cards is, is, you know, maybe a poor measure, but it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a yardstick mm-hmm. of some kind. I'd say, well, look, do, you know, how many people do I know? Like, am I getting better at assessing these people uh, or the more people that I meet? You know, can I see common traits amongst you know, good founders, bad founders, good operators, bad operators? Can I build relationships with these people and, and, turn, them more f- and turn them from faces that you might recognize at a conference to close professional uh, working relationships? But, you know, the, the biggest thing that I've tried to do is, as I say, just, just really open up the aperture, be, be, have a very low bar for meeting um, new people. One of the things I really admire about you is you've got a, a fairly impressive network in the Bay Area. And I find it doubly impressive considering you're not from here, you moved to the States. Tell me a little bit about those early years. You, you don't know a lot of folks in the area. Um, you're, you're trying to establish some roots. How did you go about that? You know, when I first moved here, it was, that was a, a huge challenge personally and professionally. You've got to remember the context, right? You know, this is, this is 
really at the kind of peak or the, the bottom of the global financial meltdown. Uh, institutional LPs around the world were shutting down their venture capital investments and venture capital investors were therefore cutting back really heavily on you know the number of deals that they were doing and, and the prices and things like that uh, on the valuations they pay, et cetera. And you know, against this kind of terrible macroeconomic backdrop, uh, you know, I, I packed up all my stuff, moved from, from London to San Francisco and set up shop in a, a solo office uh, in, in downtown SF uh, with no network and um, no relationships whatsoever. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was definitely a, uh, a challenge. Um, you know, in many ways, I think I was helped because I had, I had a really crap personal life, I mean, uh-huh. which is <laughs> genuinely terrible, right? So it's the key to any good career. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was, I, I was working for a British fund, right? I was, I was, I, I moved out here to basically create a kind of satellite office for this British fund. And so, um, every, uh, every week, um, I'd be going into the office uh, around half past five or six in the morning to jump on a conference call uh, with my partners, you know, review deals, talk about um, things we have coming down the pipeline, you know, talk about portfolio, et cetera. And then I'd be, you know, in my office for the remainder of my day, remainder of the day on my own, unless I, you know, managed to set up some meetings or anything. And then I'd come home, uh, obviously it's a pretty early start, so, you know, I'd come home at kind of five or six and would be shattered and would like kind of nothing more to to basically just kind of crash out and uh I, I i didn't know anyone i didn't have any friends i i basically again i just kind of threw myself into it and said i'll i'll meet anyone i'll i'll go anywhere i'll do anything and you know i i vividly remember going to uh all kinds of all kinds of venture events that were either free or paid in the early days uh just to go and make friends as much as it was like to try and find uh, you know, professional networks, but it's just to meet someone because I was living in this furnished apartment on my own and going to an office on my own. And it was, uh, as I say, it's pretty terrible. But um, yeah, not not having any pre-existing relationships, not having any expectations of me uh, was, was kind of liberating in some sense. Huh. You know, I'm, I'm relatively new to venture and I secretly dread networking events. You know, they often feel super transactional, hard to get through to sort of the, the real relationship. What's what's your strategy for navigating these successfully? How do you actually build relationships from these things? I don't think you can build a relationship at an event. That obviously takes time. You know, meeting someone once is not enough. Right? You, need, you need to meet them several times over and usually in different contexts with different things to say and to, to build a relationship. I was pushing people to do stuff. I was like, hey, do you want to do something this weekend? Let's go hiking. You know, hey, hey, I... Uh, I uh, there's some wineries up in Napa. Let's go and do that. Do you guys go and do that? And I think, you know, in the very earliest days, a lot of people looked at me like I was a weirdo, like a- absolute weirdo, because, you know, venture is unfortunately a, a um, pretty closed space. And so I'd be walking, I'd be going into a, a venture capital barbecue, say, and two thirds of the people there would already know one another. And half of them would have gone to university together, probably Stanford or MIT or Berkeley. And uh, there was this weirdo British dude coming up and saying, can I be your friend effectively? And, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, you get you get the kind of the usual variety of responses. Uh, some people who are just kind of too haughty or, or not interested in making new friends. And then, you know, the other, the other, the other end of the spectrum, you get people who demonstrate the, the best American virtues of, you know, openness and friendliness and, um, you know, kind of 
the spirit of gung ho, and and those were the people that I I kind of latched onto and um, continue to kind of cultivate over time. Are, are these people still in your network? Are you still in touch with these folks? Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. In fact, uh, one of the first folks I met at this uh, venture capital barbecue ended up being my uh, being an usher at my wedding. So um, they introduced me to my current wife. You know, like these are these are people who kind of ended up getting folded into my personal network as much as my professional. It's amazing. I feel like I'm missing something here because, you know, when I think about the Tom Drummond network, I think about like partners at, at top tier firms. It's surprising to me that you'd meet those people at venture barbecues. Is there a path from venture barbecue to like <laughs> Sunil and Amplify or was there, is there some other in there? I still go to barbecues, but, but maybe they're less important for my network building today than they were when I was really just starting out. There's no shortcut to, to building strong relationships with um, important people. You kind of have to work your way up to that. I feel fortunate to have uh, some, certainly some great investors, some phenomenal entrepreneurs um, to be able to count them in my network. But you know, it's taken me a better part of a decade to, to build those relationships, right? And I, and I think, you know, the, the, as well as trying to meet as many people as you can, the, the other thing that you can be doing is helping those people out, right? You know, people talk about demonstrating value, but it's really just about being helpful. If you're helpful, you know, to the first person, they're more likely to recommend you to the second person. And, and you can build a personal brand that way of just being a, a useful guy. And, you know, the more useful you are, the more connections you have. And so you go from being just a, a helpful guy and a valuable guy to being a well-connected guy or gal. You know, there's a, there's a golden rule in networking is don't be a dick. Mm. You know, it's a very simple, <laughs> it's a really simple mantra to live by, right? I think I think there are a lot of dicks in in ventures in in any other industry. You know, it's it's one thing to like have a, a this awesome network and a whole a whole program behind you. What are some ways that folks who are early in their venture career can can demonstrate value? I think there are some some universal things like being a good connector, mm. making introductions, etc., being respectful and of people's time and energy. Um, but I think, you know, mostly it, it's about understanding what you, you personally can really bring to the table, right? And so if your passion is product marketing and you can carve an hour or two out of your week to help a founder or a startup with their product marketing, that's hugely valuable. If you're a top flight engineer and, and, uh, you see someone who's building something interesting, then, you know, go and build something with their product, mm. you know, show it off to the world, the, 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 the you know, the awareness and the exposure, give them feedback. I mean, the biggest resource anyone has is their time, mm. right? And if you're able to devote your time to people without an expectation of a return, I think that I think that's really how anyone can be super valuable, right? I, you know, Silicon Valley thrives on a pay it forward culture. Mm. And I think if you want to succeed, you kind of have to embrace that philosophy. Sure. You said it helps to sort of figure out what you're good at and leverage that. What's the Tom Drummond special sauce? Uh, you know, for better or for worse now, I've, I've been in venture for 13, 14 years. The, the thing that you see most of in venture is pitches. Mm. Uh, pitches and, and fundraising is a huge amount of any, VC, uh, any VC's time. And so, you know, I, I, I think that's probably where I'd say I can, I, I try and help certainly um, the most, you know, I think every VC has very strong opinions on how to raise money and you know, what a good pitch looks like. Um, uh, and I'm no different in that, in that regard. 
you know, we could probably do a whole separate podcast called Revise My Pitch Deck. What are some common mistakes you see when helping people with their pitch? I have so many mistakes. It's hard to, <laughs> hard to narrow them down. You know, I, I think the kind of two broad categories of mistakes that, that I see are structural and you know, focus or detail. The, the structure of a pitch, the order in which you say things, the, the order of your slides makes a difference. It, it has a, a really strong impact. It really determines whether or not your, your message, your pitch lands. And I see a lot of pitches that are, you know, a collection of facts or a collection of information without a narrative, without an order, without, without, without kind of clear thought to, to, to what comes where. A lot of the times when I work with people on their pitches, that's the first thing that I talk about is, you know, what, what's the story you're trying to tell here? And what's, what's the order in, what, in which you want to tell that, that story? And there are some, there are some pretty good, you know, fairly standard structures for how to, how to lay out a pitch. Building a good structure is not difficult. You know, there, there are some pretty well thought out structures that, that, that people talk about. The second half of that, yeah, focus or kind of the, the detail level. Founders are, are obviously really deeply in the weeds of their businesses. Mm. And so it's often hard for them to understand what the right level of detail is or what the right pieces of information to surface off. Stop. There's a right level of detail for every part of the pitch. And, and knowing, you know, where, where that is, or rather understanding what the investor wants to see is, is kind of key. Well, so, you know, when I think about a pitch, there's kind of maybe three broad components I think of. There's the deck itself. There's the presentation of that deck. And then there's this more strategic component of who you talk to when and how you sequence those conversations and um, how you manage information sharing. Is, is there is a particular one of those three areas that you find yourself spending a lot of time on? My, so my mental model for fundraising in general is the, the kind of the three Ps, right? There's the, there's the pitch. Mm. And that's the deck itself. And that's also what you say, how you present that deck. Uh, there's the the people, there are the the investors that you're going to talk to, their motivations, their background, their funds, you know, their available capital, that kind of stuff. And then there's the process, you know, the, what you what you alluded to, the the order in which you go and talk to people, um, you know, how you should be uh, managing feedback that you get from one investor, and how you should be revising or um, updating your pitch, kind of as you go. And they're all, you know, they're all equally important. You know, I think founders tend to spend a lot of time trying to perfect the pitch and the story without thinking too much about either the people or the process. You can't on the on, when it comes to people, you can't you can't just pick random venture funds. You have to pick partners. You have to figure out you know how you can build relationships with those partners or get warm introductions to those partners. You have to make sure that you know, they haven't made competitive investments. Uh, you're in the these are the right people for your business. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to process, that's usually completely ignored by most, most, most founders. They, they, they really don't think of fundraising as a process, like a sales process. They think of fundraising as this kind of general amorphous exercise. And, and that, that is, you know, that, that can be fatal. Um, you know, it, it, it really helps to put rigor around the fundraising process and even find other people, you know, external advisors, investors, you know, angels who can help you make sure you stick to that process as well. Do you have a sort of standard template for a good fundraising process or do you craft a new one per raise? You know, it, it, it varies a lot depending on how much money you're trying to raise and from whom. Mm. You know, the, the process that you might have to raise 
half a million to a million and a half dollars in a seed round is nothing like the process that you raise to uh, the process that you have to raise 20 to 30 million dollars in a series b say so that's probably one one big determinant of it the constant that we always emphasize is the need to iterate mm. and a lot of people don't they treat fundraising as a kind of one-way exercise like they don't gather information back and every pitch meeting uh, every uh, every partnership meeting you should be recording what the questions are you should be trying to read between the lines about where people's concerns are you know if they're pushing you hard on the market do they not believe in the total addressable market if they're if they are giving you a lot of questions about who exactly your co-founder is and how long you've been working together. Mm. You know, do they not like the team dynamic or the management? And all of those things uh, are useful feedback in and of themselves, but but ideally they should be reworked back into the deck and, and they should be used to inform how you pitch this thing. So if you find that people don't understand exactly what it is that you do uh, or what, exactly what your product is and they're asking a lot of questions about, wait, so how does it how does it work or... How is this different from something else? Then you need to know that in the next version of your pitch, you're going to have to focus on that. You're going to have to go back, update the pitch and say, okay, let me be super clear about exactly what our product is and exactly what pain it solves. And, you know, I, I, um, yeah, I, think, I think that's probably the, the one big takeaway or the, 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 key, the key issue that we push with, with founders is iterate, iterate, iterate on the pitch. Interesting. I imagine that this sort of feeds back into the sequencing part, right? There's sort of a... You want a couple of good warm-up rounds before you get yeah, the best. We always suggest that you get advice from some friendly investors first, mm. right? Um, in many cases, that's advice from people who would never invest. Mm. And say you're uh, trying to raise your Series A and you've already raised some seed money. You know, the first people that you should talk to are your existing seed investors, right? You should go back to them and say, okay, folks, we're, we're going to go out and raise a, you know, our, our monster Series A. Here's the pitch deck and here's the story. I would love to sit down with you for a couple of hours and get your get your uh, thoughts because those are the folks who've seen dozens of their own portfolio companies either go on to successfully raise or fail to raise and who've seen hundreds if not thousands of pitches themselves the highest risk you know highest reward pitches should probably come at the end right where you have the best version of yourself the best version of this pitch you know again the, the issue is is if if you're not gathering that feedback if someone's not kind of furiously writing notes um, during that that pitch session then you'll never get any better, right? It'll be the same thing from start to end, and who knows if it's any good. So this is really interesting because one of the common complaints I hear from founders is pitching sucks, I never get any feedback, no one's direct with me, you know, it's really hard to tell how I'm doing. And you're saying, actually, there's a, there's a ton of feedback, it's just a question of sort of scrying a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to read between the lines, if you're, if you're getting absolutely stonewalled by an investor in a pitch, it's going terribly, right? You know, a terrible pitch is, is one where, there's this, where, it's a, where it's you talking constantly, right? Great pitches are like conversations. People are chiming in. They're enthusiastic. You know, they have questions. They want to explore a bit more. You can walk them through your story. Uh, a pitch where, you know, you are talking for 30, 40 minutes without the investor saying anything is terrible. Number one, you should be inviting questions, right? Mm. Or well, you should try and treat it like a conversation. So stop in the middle of your pitch. Pause. Ask them, does that make sense? Have you seen something like this? Do you understand what the problem is here? Or do you see how this is a big opportunity? Push, you know, the VC, push the investor for their feedback. It's very easy for VCs to give non-committal responses. And in fact, you know, there's a good amount of theory that says the best thing for VC to do is kind of sit on his hands until 
he's very, very sure that confidence might come from other interest in the round, that confidence might come from doing more diligence, et cetera. But there's a, there are a lot of good reasons why VCs try not to say no or to share too much information, right? You know, it doesn't help the VC if he says, I don't like you, Peter, you're not a very good founder, right? Uh, it doesn't help them if they go out and say, I don't understand this product or I don't mm. understand the problem. Like they're better off going and asking other people in their network confidentially to go and diligence the thing for them. I still think that you can solicit kind of good feedback. Some of that's fairly almost emotional. Like, like how do you feel like the tone of the conversation is going? Is this a conversation or not? Um, or is it just you talking to, to, you know, a person reading their BlackBerry? I'm dating myself there. Is this just you? <laughs> is this is this just you talking to 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 a VC who's checking his iPhone? I, I want to bring it back to the Tom Drummond story because I feel like we left off at a pivotal moment. You're you're in San Francisco. You're sort of miserable. You're going to barbecues and begging people to go hiking. And then at some point, you meet James Lindenbaum, and he has this crazy idea. Tell me about that moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the kind of the, the lead up to that was. I was having a pretty terrible time personally when I moved out here. Also, certainly, I was kind of very independent. And and as a as a um, in an effort to fix that, I, I tried to be my most social self, and that included moving into a massive communal house. I moved into a seven eight bedroom house with thirteen fourteen other people living in it, um, almost all of whom were entrepreneurs, founders, or, or working at startups with with almost no personal connection to any of these people. Like you know. Uh, this is on Craigslist. I went along to an open house. And I just said, hey, this is me. And, uh, you know, tried to charm my way into this, this enormous commune. And it was really as a result of that, that, that my personal network started developing. Like that was a, a bunch of good friends and roommates that I could have. They, they introduced me to people who were working at other startups. They introduced me to other investors or VCs or angels that they knew. And, and uh, you know, it was just, seren- uh, uh, just really serendipity that through that network that I ended up meeting James. Um, James at the time was, I guess this would have been kind of late 2000. So he would have still been running Heroku. Yeah, we just we just got chatting. Um, you know, I, sadly we did not, my fund did not get to invest in, in Heroku. As, Big mistake. As you might, like it went very quickly. You know, uh, you know James did a phenomenal job, uh, you know, raised remarkably little capital, had a phenomenal exit, you know, uh, for me, it was just more interesting to to kind of see some of that story evolve. But yeah, it was it was really just a really just kind of serendipity um, that that we got connected. And then after after James had after you know Heroku had been acquired by Salesforce, um, James and I started talking about some of the things that he'd seen as a founder, some of the kind of requests that he was getting for help and advising and for help and to advise other founders who are building similar companies. And and it was really kind of from there that, that um, you know, we started building HeavyBit. Cool. What, what were those early days like? In the very early days of HeavyBit, there were four of us. Uh, it was James, uh, myself, uh, Jason, and, and Tim. Jason and Tim uh, were responsible for kind of community and the building that we run here. James uh, was really working on the kind of investments and pipeline side of the house. And then everything else was really my responsibility. So small role, small role, small role, building the program, managing the budget, managing the team, continuing to build more investor relationships, helping our founders, building the operational services, uh, building content, building the website. <laughs> it was just kind of on, on me to fill in any gaps, right? I remember 
you know, in the super early days, things like we, we would get broken into and, and uh, Jason would come and, and sleep downstairs as security, right? He'd bring his dog Thor to help take care of the building. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I built the first version of the website um, and the video library. You know, Tim uh, started building the, the video content. Uh, I was responsible for booking and, and managing all of our speakers and office hours. And yeah, it was just do, do everything we can to build, a, to build a valuable program and to help the founders who are going to participate. Thankfully, it's not quite like that anymore. But, but yeah, it was, it was like, you know, do everything basically. It seems like a long time ago. What, what are some of the biggest changes from heavy bit v1 to heavy bit in 2017 you know the biggest thing that we've done is invested more heavily in 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 our own team and the kind of operational services that uh, we provide portfolio right you know we started out very uh with a very narrow focus really around kind of coaching and education we got phenomenal people to come and and speak to our founders to host office hours kind of teach them ceos founders of important companies in our space. You know, it was great to see our founders and their teams kind of grow. It was great to try and, it was great to watch that skills transfer. But at the same time, you know, we we kind of recognized that to really accelerate the growth of the companies, we actually needed to go in and, and help them make those interventions, not just say, oh, this is how you build a sales funnel, or this is how you build a marketing plan, or here's what content marketing is, but actually to say, right, we're going to, roll up our sleeves and we are going to do PR for you. We are going to go and build content for and with you. We are going to recruit for you. We are going to identify talent and, and put them in front of you, right? It was really an effort to try and help our companies grow faster that led us to build more of the operational services out. And I think that's that's the biggest biggest difference. Over time, the other thing that's changed is really just the, the scale and the, the scope of our network. We kind of started with nothing, right? We had no founders. We had some LP relationships, you know, we're on our way to hundred of, you know, hundred founders in our, in the, in the kind of heavy bit family. We've got dozens and dozens of VCs who we count as kind of key supporters of heavy bit and who've invested in heavy bit companies, as well as a host of other investor relationships at the seed series A and even some series B uh, stages. And we, we have a phenomenal network of advisors in the very early days. It was, it was James and mine, personal network you know we were reaching out to folks we were people picking people that we'd worked with in the past and asking them to come and speak and now you know that that's really just a, a, an incredible um, stable of entrepreneurs of operators of execs who we were lucky to count as heavy bit heavy bit advisors i'm imagining that the the feeling is pretty different you know in early days you've got this fairly tight group you're seeing all the founders on a daily basis. You're working out of the same office. Now, a bunch of founders have graduated. Uh, many of our teams are remote. How do you preserve the sort of community and camaraderie of Heavybit at a larger scale? I don't want to sound too kind of cultish, but, but you know, there are kind of the rituals of community that help form better community bonds. Really even just kind of small things that help give a community a sense of identity, whether that's, you know, the swag that you give people or style of events that you run. There's a million and one kind of small things that try and that that we care about, that we think about to help build a cohesive community. One of the most important things is 
is instilling in our later stage founders a sense of responsibility mm. over new members. Often the best advice and the best perspectives come from founders who are 12 to 24 months ahead of you in your journey. You know, they've, they've, they've literally just been through many of the same challenges that, that you have. And giving our early stage founders an opportunity to go and talk to those companies, to go and talk to those founders, and just to learn from their own personal experiences, to learn from some of their scars, I think helps, really helps knit, knit together uh, a lot of heavy bits community. I, we're still small in, in many regards. You know, I, I think about the phenomenal scale that, that folks like, you know, YC and Techstars and, uh, and others have achieved. And so compared to those, those um, programs, you know, we're, we're, we're really kind of fledgling. I really like the theme you're going with of uh, paying it forward, mentorship. Yeah. You know, this idea of mentorship is, is key. I mean, we, we certainly think about our own educational program through the lens of mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, that's really for, for us as we bring in execs to come and do speaker series or operators to come and host office hours. Being able to get mentored by and to be kind of have a frank discussion with founders who, who've literally just been through what you're going through, um, you know, is, is, a, is a huge opportunity or is, a, is, a, is hugely valuable. Is this something you try to filter for when, when you look for new heavy bit members? Is there sort of a like... Well, I mean, there's, you know, I go back to the don't be a dick rule, right? <laughs> like, you know, and I, I, like our community, our sense of community is one of our most precious commodities. And, you know, it's not really kind of part of the, the diligence process, but we do have this kind of emotional filter for like, are they, are they, are they going to be a good fit with the rest of us? We do have this kind of almost, you know, emotional filter. Like, are they going to be good community members? And you have to be careful about, you know, just finding more people who look like you and, you know, balancing good community members versus a homogenous community. Mm. But we definitely recognize how precious our community is. And so we want to make sure that we're not going to bring people into it who are going to be unnecessarily disruptive to it. Hmm. What are some warning signs that might cause you to say no to a founder? The the biggest thing is really close-mindedness. You know, obviously uh, the the program itself is very heavily centered around mentorship and education. And if you're fairly close-minded to the things that we have to say or the people that we're going to expose you to, you're not going to get a lot of value out of the program being open-minded or being inquisitive i think is also really the best people are people who are both interested and interesting right you people you can sit down at a dinner party they're interested in what you have to say and they're interesting people to talk to because they have unique perspectives and different opinions and you know close-minded people don't close-minded people aren't interested in 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 what you have to say or in hearing your opinion and close-minded people have less interesting opinions because they've shut themselves off to you know and closed-minded people just aren't, aren't as interesting. They've not been exposed to a wide array of, of interesting things. Okay, so this is really interesting because I think it ties back to what you said way back when about developing your own sense for people. You said, I try to keep a wide aperture. And, I, and, and one, of my, one of my own pieces of learning was building a good intuition for, for the qualities of a good founder. You've sort of named two of them. The first is don't be a dick. The second is I look for folks that are curious and open-minded. Any other traits that you look for in heavy bit founders? I mean, there are a whole host of traits, you know, technical ability, 
strategic sense, understanding of their own market, management abilities. There's a whole host of things. One of the big things that I personally look for is, is passion and conviction. Mm. You know, I, I say it's nice to have people who are open-minded, but that doesn't mean that you want people who are kind of easily swayed. You know, you want people with really strongly held opinions who believe in what they're doing, who have a fire in their belly for going out and doing it. And I think, you know, that that's also a, a, a big predictor of, of success. You know, they're people who are not just financially, but emotionally bought in to the success of their product, their platform, their, their company. What do they say? I prefer missionaries over mercenaries. <laughs> right? Tom Drummond, it's, it's been a real pleasure having you. Before you go, any any final words of advice to folks who might be beginning their careers in venture? Stuff you wish you knew going into it? If you're early in your venture career, you should be absolutely fearless about reaching out to founders, trying to build your network, about trying to reach people who you think might be beyond your reach. It's about, yeah, it's about kind of being fearless about saying, I'm, I would love to talk to this person because they'll give me an interesting perspective. So I'm just going to reach out and, and, and being okay if they don't respond, not thinking that you, you can't contact this person or that you, you know, you shouldn't attend this thing, right? You should just be absolutely fearless and try to get there out, out there as much as possible. And then you should be open-minded because there are a million and one um, ideas out there. And it's easy to think that all million of them are terrible. You know, a lot of these phenomenal businesses now started out as a terrible idea. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, you, you, you cannot succeed in, in venture without, you know, almost being a, an optimist at heart, right? Thinking, you know, this has the, this, this has the possibility of working. This has the possibility to become something big. So, yeah. Great. Tom, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cheers. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.